from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's our conversation exploring everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I founded Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program 30 years ago. Now, I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. And if you visit totalleadership.org, you can find all kinds of useful free information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Yes, it can be done. Totalleadership.org. Check it out. Also, I'm really happy to let you know that I've just released an audio course based on the Total Leadership program. It's called Four Way Wins on Himalaya Learning, which is an audio learning platform. Great library of courses there. You can listen to my course, Four Way Wins, and others at Himalaya.com. Go to Himalaya.com slash wins, enter the promo code wins at checkout, get your first 14 days free. I hope to see you there. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. I am so glad we're doing the show today. Are you a parent who worries about how much time your child or children spends online? Or like me, are you a grandparent who has the same worries? It's true that there are many bad things about too much tech, but today's guest shows convincingly that you can teach your kids and yourself how to use technology proactively and productively. And he's just published a great book to help you navigate all that. Richard Collada is the author of Digital for Good. Perfect title. Digital for Good, because it's both about, you know, forever, as well as for doing right. Raising kids to thrive in an online world. Richard, welcome to Work in Life. Thanks. Great to be here with you today. Let me tell listeners a little bit more about you. Richard Collada serves as CEO of the International Society for Technology in Education, that's ISTE, which is a nonprofit serving education leaders in 127 countries, a teacher by training and innovative by inclination. Collada leverages technology to reinvent learning. He was appointed by President Obama as the director of the Office of Educational Technology for the United States Department of Education. Currently, he serves as a senior fellow at NYU's GovLab and as a design resident for the San Francisco-based innovation and design firm IDEO. Richard, so glad you're here. Um, this is a huge issue. You know, before the pandemic, there was already so much written about, talked about how our teens and tweens and even younger kids are using, were affected by the brave new digital world. There was concern, all kinds of concerns in here being pulled out all over the place about how kids were affected when their parents were on their smartphones while physically with their kids, they were psychologically absent. I want to talk about that important issue. I've done some research on that myself. And there was concern about how children themselves were using technology and were being influenced by social media and the like. I mean, every single day you read something new about that as a problem. And then the pandemic just bumped everything up to like a, a many, many notches further of anxiety and concern with children going to school online and parents working remotely in front of their kids in their shared home space. So, you know, how technology affects children, how parents can work with technology that is now ubiquitous that our kids have grown up with, it couldn't possibly be more urgent. Let me, before we get into the extremely helpful, practical, evidence-based ideas you've got for how to deal with this issue in a positive way, how did you get interested in this topic? What inspired you? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question because I, you know, I spent my career at the intersection of tech 
and learning and education, right? So, so this is, these are issues I've been dealing with for, you know, decades. Mm-hmm. And yet we have four kids. My wife and I have four kids between the How ages old? of eight and yep. 16. So okay. we're right in the, in the middle of this, right? Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, we said, as we were trying to come up with the healthy digital culture in our family, my, my wife turned to me and said, well, you, this is what you work and this is what you study. What tips do we have to do this right? And, I and thought, you said- I am totally unprepared for this. I have no idea. <laughs> so, so Stu, you know what I did is I, I started turning to look at other books that were out there. Yeah. And what I found was a whole bunch of really um, you know, negative, you know, there were books that were called things like the boogeyman in your pocket or, uh, you know, how technology is making our kids dumber by the day. And, and that message just wasn't resonating with what I saw, both in my own kids and in mm. other people's kids that I knew. I saw, you know, smart, creative, uh, really amazing young people that just needed some guidance and some help and support to mm. use technology in meaningful ways. And so, and so that really, at the end of the day, that's what made me say, all right, look, I got to I gotta dive into this deeper and figure out what is the right, what, what, what advice do parents like me need? And can I help try to provide that so that it can be useful for all families that are dealing with the same question? Yeah, and you were uh, smart enough and informed enough with the right background to be able to gather up the current state of useful knowledge about how to do that you know, as, as well as anyone. Uh, along with the the desperate inspiration you have had to try to figure this out for your own kids is this uh, there's no better motivation that I can think of. Uh, so. All right. Um, well, your perspective is not about demonizing technology, although you are certainly not blind to the difficulties. In fact, you you, you know, you're the first few chapters outline those. And I want to I want to get to those in just a second. But you're your very affirmative view. I mean, there's no turning back anyway. Uh, So it's a very realistic and pragmatic view is, all right, let's find the good and, and let's, let's make it better and do what we can to mitigate, you know, the negative consequences. So how does one start? I mean, maybe it would be useful. I don't want to belabor this, but just really quickly, what are those massive problems that everybody is screaming about every day? Yeah, it's good to take a minute there. And as you said, as I wrote this book, it is it is a book that's very positive. It focuses on the the things that we can do to make it better. But 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 what's not helpful is to have rose colored glass. You know, to, to somehow pretend that there aren't big problems. There there are. There are some major. Uh, I call them digital dysfunctions that we have uh, grown into. And and some of them are. I'll just give a couple examples. Um, <clears throat> one of them is uh, the fact that we have become uh, accustomed to. Uh, using an an internet, an online world that is largely driven by ads. And so Mm. we bombard our kids with ads, but we haven't prepared them very well to recognize what is advertising and what is not. And Mm. so that right there sets up a bit of of a challenge if we're not, you know, preparing, providing the structure to recognize how to distinguish between the two. And there's some fascinating studies, uh, one done by Stanford University that showed that most uh, kids and even older kids, right, even up into into high school and uh, uh, beyond, can't distinguish between advertising content and non-advertising content in virtual spaces. But you can teach that. Yes, it is certainly something you can teach, but if you don't teach it, we're just we're just making our our kids very vulnerable to being taken advantage by people who are advertising. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so, so that's, that's one, one one digital dysfunction, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Another one. So in other uh, words, we should get rid of Facebook. I got it. Next problem. <laughs> so another one is we uh you know, we are in a world and this is a term that's not going to be a surprise to any parent or any kid where we see a lot of cyberbullying. We see people who are uh, using technology to uh, make other people miserable in virtual spaces. And uh, that's a big problem that we have not been very effective at combating with our current approaches. Mm-hmm. And, and we got to know about that. We can't pretend that that doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. that's certainly a digital dysfunction. Let me, one more that I'll just share. And this is a, a, a broader one is I believe that our current, the way our current uh, current society is using technology is eroding 
uh, civil society. We certainly have evidence that it is undermining free and fair elections, and not just in the U.S., but all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have seen that the ability to have the open debate and conversation that is so critical for a functioning democracy is being eroded by, by technology. And so, so our our very civil society is at risk by the way that we are currently using uh, technology. It's, and, and of course there's more, um, in, including the addiction that people have to uh, not just social media, but games, yeah. which is another aspect of the digital world. Um, <clears throat> and the fact that, I mean, I see studies about this all the time that, our mental health, our physical and mental health are eroded uh, yeah. by uh, too much uh, unfettered or unintelligent or unintentional use of these digital tools. So you want to grow useful and productive and, and uh, helpful digital citizens. Um, where do we begin? <laughs> Well, you know, it turns out that one of the things that we need to recognize is some things that we have been doing to try to help prepare kids to be successful, to thrive in a virtual space so far that are actually not working well. Right. So like part of our part of our problem that is we have to be a little more self-aware about some of the tools that as parents and teachers we've been using that actually are not very helpful. And, uh, and, and there's, a, there's a couple, actually, really two that I found after interviewing, you know, many teachers and parents and, mm -hmm. and working all around, both in, in, in the U.S. and around the world, uh, there are two challenges with our current approach to preparing kids to be successful online. And, and I'll tell you what they are. The first is we are far too negative in the conversations that we have. And so uh, if you talk to parents, uh, schools, our approach is to list all the don'ts, right? Uh, don't share inappropriate pictures online. Don't be a jerk online. Don't uh, share personal information. Uh, don't talk to strangers. Don't, 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 don't. It's just all these don'ts, right? Yes. Uh, and we almost never talk about the do's. Uh, I was just looking actually at a, at a school the other day. I was, I was getting ready to talk to a group of, of teachers. And so I pulled up this school's uh, internet uh, agreement, right? Their guide. And they had 35 don'ts, 35 things that the kids were not allowed to do. And zero, not a single do, right? Not a single example wow. of what we want them to do with technology. Well, mm. the problem, Stu, is you can't practice not doing something right? <laughs> and these skills, the skills of being an effective human, a good digital citizen, right? In, in a virtual world, these are complex skills. They require practice. And, and just like my kids, you know, my kids play the piano and, and you can't learn to play the piano by being told all the notes not to play. The, <laughs> the only way you become a good pianist is you learn and you practice playing the right notes. And yes. that's the first shift that we have to make is we have to shift from saying all the don'ts to saying, here are the do's. Here's what we want you to do in virtual spaces. Here's the type of person we want you to practice being. Here's the type of friends and types of activities we want you to engage in, in mm. a virtual space. So uh, as a student of piano myself, um, I, I, can, I think that's a perfect analogy. What are the, the scales and, you know, the various other sort of uh, conceptual elements? I mean, maybe it would be helpful you know, to carry the analogy further, what are those, the crucial skills? You outlined five of them. And before I give you a chance to tell our listeners what those skills are, and your book is filled with all kinds of very practical ways for developing these skills. Let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Richard Collata, author of Digital for Good. Just out, get it. If you've got kids, you need this book. Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. What are those five crucial skills that you sort of boiled it down to to help organize uh, a way to think in a proactive and productive and affirmative way about what to do, not only what not to do? Exactly. So if we're going to if we're going to pitch it in terms of to do, well, we need to know what the do's are. What are they? So, so I came up with uh, five categories, five buckets of, of do's, if you mm -hmm. will. And so they are learning to be balanced to have balance between your, your use of tech and the use of activities that you do when you're online and offline. That's the first one. 
The second is becoming informed. So recognizing how to get uh, useful information and how to curate and distinguish between information that is useful and not in a virtual space. That's the second one. The third one is learning to be inclusive, learning to uh, engage with and, and value people and opinions that are very different from yours in a virtual space. Uh, the fourth is being engaged, and, and by engaged, I mean uh, connected to your family, your community, your country through technology, so being, being an active participant of your communities. And then the last one, uh, the, the fifth bucket is, is being alert, being alert for uh, potential risks that could put you at danger, but also being alert for creating safe spaces for others in a virtual space. And those five buckets, those are the things that I believe that we should focus on as, as the do's of becoming a healthy digital human. And how do those differ from what uh, my teachers tried to teach me when I was growing up in the New York City public schools in the 1960s? I mean, those are all really important tools for living and ways to think about how to be a good citizen. What is it about the digital world that is distinctive that makes these five buckets of uh, you know principles or skills for how to be an effective citizen uh, you know distinctive or you know of of the moment. So so it's interesting. What I one of the things I say in the book is these should be things that are very familiar to parents uh, and teachers and community leaders, right? Whoever it is from having taught them in the physical world. So, so if you go through those things, maybe we've used other names, other terms, but that idea of being balanced, being informed, being inclusive or kind, right? Being engaged, being alert. Those are not concepts that are new in the, in the physical world. We, we're really good at teaching kids those, those concepts. The problem is we often do not or have not figured out how to teach those same concepts that we've taught for generations in the physical world, in the virtual world. And, and I think there's an assumption that some parents make that if we teach kids how to be kind, how to be informed, how to find balance in the physical world, that that will just naturally carry over to the digital world. Well, and, why and won't that's it? That's not true. What's, yeah, why is that? Well, part why don't, why why don't those it, lessons transfer from our citizenship in the physical world to our citizenship online? It's a great question. And, and, and one of the things that if, if we look a little bit about how people learn about just the cognitive science and how the brain works, it's very difficult to transfer something that you have learned in one context, in one environment, uh, to another. Uh, and, and you see this all the time. Look, in school, you, you've had this happen probably if you remember going through a math class in school and, and probably learning some formula and being able to maybe even, even pass and do well on the test, but then coming to a real-life environment where you needed to use that same math skill and, and really struggling to know how to do it, right? Because it's not written out on a piece of paper with a multiple choice answer, it's, it's coming in a very different, uh, different context. Richard, right? that did not happen to me. I was really good at math and I could have it very well. In <laughs> Maybe I should have owned that one for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But no, I'm not, anyway, but yeah, I, I take your point but that you it's a different idea, right? context different, it's very hard to transfer from one context to another. So even when we learn these skills and we see and we practice these skills in, in a face-to-face -face environment, right? Uh, kindergarten teachers are fantastic at this, by the way. If there's a, an argument, you know, some kid steals the book from the other kid and the teacher goes, hey, let's make this a learning moment. We don't steal a book. We say, can I take a turn? And we practice doing it again, right? That is all a great learning experience. But when you transfer that, to a digital environment where it looks different, where it feels different, it's very hard to bring those same lessons, those skills over. And so that's the, that's the challenge, uh, Stu, right. is that we have to model them. We have to practice them in the environment where we mm -hmm. want kids to be able to use those skills if we want them to stick. All right, let's get into it. Um, let's, can we start with the first one? Sure. Understand when and how much tech use is healthy. How do you teach that? Yeah, I started with that one because that was one of the biggest pain points that I heard from talking to families. You are it's only allowed 33 minutes per day right. and anything over that and you will not eat for the next month. That's exactly. I could repeat basically something similar to that times 100 interviews, right? So, <laughs> so one of the challenges, and, and, and I want to be careful because this is, uh, it is done, you know, very well-intentioned, but there are parents who go, 
we know we need some boundaries and some limits, right? And, and we do. Mm-hmm. And so they revert to uh, using the clock as the way to set those limits. They say, we, we mm. do screen time. We're going to have 30 minutes or, or an hour of screen time. The problem with that approach is that it teaches that all uh, digital activities are worth the same value, right? Mm. So if I say to you, you can do whatever you want for the next hour, and then we're going to cut it off at the end of the hour, it does not teach the concept that some activities may be worth, may be valuable enough that we should be doing them for much longer than that. And some activities are, are so low in value that they probably don't even deserve, you know, 10 minutes, much less an hour. And so that idea of using the time as the limiting factor is a concept that we should uh, rethink. And, and if I can just give one quick example of this, again, to compare to the physical world, we teach a very similar concept when we teach our kids how to eat healthily, right? We, we teach them, you know, eat, uh, eat good foods. Uh, we sometimes eat, you know, snacks. We eat some Twinkies sometimes, but we only do that occasionally. Never. And if we've had a good meal. Imagine, I, know, I love though, Twinkies as a kid, but I have not had a Twinkie in about 60 years. So no, I'll send no, you a no Twinkie Twinkies. after this. You're going you're to get a Twinkie. But, but look, imagine if we said, imagine if we said it's food time for the next hour, it's food time. You can eat whatever you want as much as you want. But as long as you're done at the end of food time, we're good, right? That would be Devil a terrible dogs. lesson because it would teach that you could eat any crap that you want, right? That there's no That's a good analogy. And it would take away a child's ability to learn to stop eating when they're full. Yeah. And that's why when we are in the virtual world, we want to start to learn, yes, we want to create boundaries around how much tech is being used, but it should be based on uh, 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 approaches that are not just a clock. Well, that is brilliant and makes perfect sense. However, what if your child is addicted to video games and mm-hmm. all they want to do online is play video games? Okay. You've got your 45 minutes, go crazy and pound away at your Xbox or whatever those things are called. Yeah. Uh, and and, the, and the, that's your diet. Any advice there? Absolutely. So so I know things. that's a very big problem. It, it is a very big problem. So, so a couple of things. First of all, it's important to distinguish when there is an actual addiction. Uh, and I do want to clarify that because there are cases where there are kids where there is a true, you know, a, a, a psychological addiction and there, yeah. there, are, there are help, there, there's medical attention when that's the case. What I found in most cases in talking to parents is there wasn't an actual addiction, right? There was, there's just a kid who's like, hey, this is more interesting than anything else I'm doing. So it's what I'm going to mm-hmm. keep doing for the next hour until we come up with something better. So, so in, in the vast majority of those cases, um, what, what has to happen is, is a couple things. One, a conversation about value, right? And a conversation with our kids that say, is this activity that you're doing on your device, is it offering a good value in exchange for the amount of time that you're giving to it? And that doesn't happen, you know, in one second. It's not a quick decision. It's, it's a conversation. And it means that we have to have a conversation with our kids about what types of apps and activities they're using. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's one part of it is to say, again, it's teaching that concept. Not all apps are created equal. Some are, are games. You know, I, I watched kids play, play Minecraft and I was just blown away by how creative this was. Oh People yeah, were no, I, I don't, please don't, anyone listening, don't start writing hate mail saying that, oh, you, you don't understand the value of video games. I do, I do, yeah. I do. But, but some, Stu, some games were really stupid. Like, let me just be clear. They were, they were luck-based. There was no thought involved. It was literally mm-hmm. like a digital equivalent of, of a slot machine. Mm-hmm. And so the first, the first step is helping to educate with our kids, not, not do this to them, but with them talk about, let's look at some of the games that you're playing. What ones do you think are, are a better use of your time because they're helping you be a more interesting, better person using your brain, et cetera. And what ones are ones that, you know, probably we shouldn't be using much longer than a few minutes because they just aren't, aren't very useful. This makes really good sense. Um, and I, I'd like to just follow up with one question about that before we have to go for a break. Sure. And that is, um, where do where do parents and their say teenage kids or pre teenage kids run into the most resistance in implementing that really good idea, Richard? I, I think the biggest challenge is um, not doing a good enough job of articulating what better option there is for the time. 
Mm. So, so what I mean by that is, is we, we do, you know, we say, look, let's look at your games, look what you're doing. Let's talk about what ones have more value than others. And, and great. So we understand that. But then the next step is what are other activities, whether digital or physical, either way, right? In the, in the, in the physical world or, or online that have higher value than this thing that you're doing? Because mm. then it becomes an easier conversation. You're like, yeah, I agree. This game kind of isn't not really a good use of my time. But so what? Like, what other option is there? And so that's when we say, look, look at all these other activities that you can do that align to your interests, that help you engage with your friends, that help you engage with your family. So when we find we're in a game that isn't providing a lot of value and we're doing it for a long time, we need to recognize that that is now keeping us from other activities that are, are, are of higher value, that we agree are better for us to be participating in. So, so time is never a good idea to, I mean, if you place no time boundaries, then. Yeah, it's look, it's not that you can never use time. You know, for example, we have bedtimes in our family, right? And so if Mm -hmm. you're playing a device and bedtimes in a half an hour, we're, you know, that means you have about a half an hour. So it's not that we can't ever talk about time, but it's that the using a timer as the primary distinguishing factor, the determining factor for what app you're using or what game you're playing or how long you are playing on, on the device is not setting our kids up for success because someday that timer is not going to be there and we need them to already be able and willing to recognize when they're full and when they need to move on to another activity. We need to take a short break here, but don't go away. When we come back, I'll be continuing my conversation with Richard Collada about his great new book, Digital for Good. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I am thrilled to be talking today to Richard Collada who's the CEO of the International Society for Technology and Education. We're talking about his wonderful new book. It's called Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. All right, Richard, we were talking about the five buckets of skills and principles that kids need to know, that parents really need to know to help their kids thrive in a digital world. We talked a bit about the first one, which could be the most important one, be balanced, understand when and how much tech use is healthy. And you gave some good advice there. There's more in the book. I want to get to the other four, at least to address them briefly. So let's, let's go. Um, <clears throat> stay informed, be an active and discerning consumer of information online. What exactly does that mean? And how do you implement that? Yeah. So one of the challenges that we have to recognize is that being informed, right, being, you know, aware of of information uh, is very, it's a very different skill for kids today than what we had when we were growing up, uh, Stu. So, so for example, one of the, the biggest challenges that I think you may agree that we had was being able to find an answer to our question. And so often, you know, our, in school, our, our teachers would talk about how do you find, how do you go to an encyclopedia? How do you find an expert, right? It was all about finding information. Well, now there is an overwhelming, there's a fire hose of information coming at us constantly. So finding information is not the tough skill. The tough skill that we have to teach today is to be able to find the most useful piece of information in a whole sea of noise. And so I talk about the fact that we need to help kids become curators, right? In the same way, like you think of when you hear the word curation, you think of museums, right? In, in, in a, as, a, as an information curator, we need to be able to recognize when a piece of information is useful for us and for what purpose. And so that means being able to recognize in some of the, the suggestions that I give for parents and teachers for talking to their kids are things like, recognizing what the intent was behind the creation of uh, a website or some, some information. Hmm. Uh, one good question to ask is who paid for the content? Is it paid for by a company? Is it paid for by advertising? Is it because that's an indication. It's a helpful sign to help us know whether the information that we're receiving has value for our intended purpose. When you say for our intended purpose, you mean for 
your children for your sure for, for your children. Although certainly this is a skill I think that parents could uh, apply for themselves as well, right? But but they need to know what is their purpose. Is their purpose to to find fact? If so, then if there's a piece of information that was written intending to sell uh, something, then you know it's not that it's not that there's anything wrong with that. They just need to recognize that it may be biased in a way that is not helpful for what I'm trying to learn. How does that apply to Google search? Well, I mean, Google search is a, is a great, uh, great example, because one of the things that we've often, maybe I should say we've not done enough is uh, help our kids understand how to be effective Google searchers. Uh, so, so you can just punch in an answer and take the first result. But if that first result is, you know, again, from a, a um, you know, a, a company that's selling a product, or, uh, you know, or we haven't thought carefully about the search terms that we're using, we can end up getting information that isn't helpful for our intended purposes. So one simple thing, look, Stu, one simple thing that I think all parents should do is, is just spend a minute doing some advanced searches on Google with, with their kids. You know, Google has a Google advanced search where you can control more of mm-hmm. what the results are. You're not just kind of beholden to whatever their algorithms say. And that's a healthy activity uh, to go through. It's also healthy to look at searching for information on places other than Google. Right, so so there are many other sources, including sources like uh, you know sites like Snopes, where they they fact check, uh, or um, you know tools like Wikipedia, where uh, you can get some very different and very interesting answers to questions that you're looking for that will be different from what you get if you just put something into Google. So, can you give an example of finding out who paid for the content that you know once uh, a child or parent and child together discovered it would think, oh wow. That's nefarious. We should stay away from that. <laughs> sure. And, and maybe it's not so much that it's just, nef- there, there is stuff out there that we might find this nefarious, but, but, but what I find more often is, I, you know, I go to a site and I'm looking for information and I find that the answer is spread over 13 pages and it's requiring me to click next, 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 because it's trying to serve me as many ads as possible. Oh, And so in that case, when we're talking with my kids, we might have a conversation and say, okay, who is paying for this content? Well, it is clearly advertising revenue that is paying the site creator. And so their goal isn't to give me a concise answer. Their goal is to give me a long dragged out, probably a convoluted answer so that I'll click through 13 pages as opposed to just one. Again, it, it doesn't mean it's, it's harmful to look at that content. I just need to be aware going into it mm. that there is a purpose behind the design of that answer that is different from going to, you know, say, Wikipedia. How um, would that be different than watching, say, the Olympics uh, and you see Visa commercials? And you know that what Visa is trying to do is to, you know, make money on your interest. Uh, but, but they're sponsoring the event. It's a great... Um, how do you, how would you think about that? Which is it's not exactly digital life, but it's you know it's it's an analogous situation. Yeah. What would you? How would you approach that conversation with your sixteen year old? It's a it's a great analogy, and I think the dis, the difference, and this is why we talk about why it's important to practice these skills in the digital space, uh-huh. is that in the traditional world, in the physical world, um, it's which TV to- is not, of course, so that's maybe not a good example. But please continue. It still it still works, right? So so in in a, in a in a you know the, the physical environment, even if it means watching TV, advertising is very clearly delineated. If we're driving mm. down a highway and there's a billboard, right? There's no question that that's an advertisement, right? It's it's clearly there in advertising. Again, same with even you know with the Olympics, you watch a, a bit of programming and they say we're going to take a break, and then there is advertising, and then they come back to the program. Uh, one of the things that we saw, and there's a, a great study done by Stanford University that showed that uh, young people, uh, you know, kids in junior high and high school, even in college, mm-hmm. have a very hard time distinguishing between what is advertising content and what is uh, the informational content mm-hmm. on a web page where that line is really blurred. It's, it's mm-hmm. not so clear like a big billboard on the side of the road. It's, it's mixed in or some links that are, 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 you know, highlighted that are paid links that are mixed in with with other content so it's sneakier the messaging is sneakier sneakier. and and harder to discern that's right commercial intent or or the political intent or whatever the uh intent of the the owner slash sponsor it might not be so easy to see that's it 100 percent. but the cool part is the the same internet that makes it really hard for us to be able to distinguish you know between sources and advertising 
also makes it easier for us to be able to find uh, differing viewpoints. And so one simple activity is uh, go look at news, go find information from sources that you wouldn't normally look at. Uh, All right, so, so let's so like, get to, to your, your point three, which is be yeah. inclusive. Uh, consider multiple points of view with respect. How do you do that? Well, look, one of the first things that we need to do is recognize that there is value in opposing viewpoints. And often we think yeah. uh, opposing viewpoints are threatening, right? But we mm -hmm. actually need to recognize that in order for us to learn, in fact, in order for us to, to have our viewpoints uh, be solidified, we have to have engagement with differing viewpoints. It's how the brain works. Mm -hmm. but, but the risk here, and here's the that's problem. how science works, right? It, it is, that's how science works, of course. Now, now here's the risk. In the virtual world, uh, there is an incentive, particularly on sites that are driven by, by ad revenue, Mm -hmm. There is an incentive to keep people clicking and scrolling as long as possible. And the way that we have found to do that is make them angry, presenting information that reinforces their current beliefs right now and makes them scared and angry. Right. That's right. Either by making them angry because of some crazy other idea or by seeing a good example that reinforces them. It keeps us in a, a thought bubble mm -hmm. where it starts to feel like no matter what we believe, whatever it is, we believe that we are right and everybody else agrees with us. And so this, this artificial rightness that we start to feel when we're getting information sent at us that reinforces our viewpoints is really dangerous. Yes, and it's what philosophers have been urging us to transcend since the dawn of time. So how in the digital world where, it's, where, where everything is engineered to do just the opposite of thinking expansively and, and in a cosmopolitan way, how do you bust past that? How do you get your kids to watch the opposite political view or to, to subscribe and understand what people on the other side of your political views are thinking and why they're thinking what they're thinking and what they're saying? How do you do that without, without scaring the daylights out of them? Right. <laughs> this is something that requires... Uh, modeling. And, and, and there's some cool ways to do it. So one example that I like to do, I mean, an easy one is just say, hey, pick, if it's news, you know, pick whatever news source that you like and, and, you know, read that and then pick an alternate news source that you wouldn't often go to. If you, if you uh, prefer listening to NPR, then go and find some of the same stories reported by Fox News. If you are, and a, a really fun one to do is go find news that's being reported from another country about mm -hmm. a similar issue. And you'll see yeah. all of a sudden, whoa, like there is a very different way of, of talking about the same story. And just that concept, just that understanding that there is a variety of uh, ways to view a, mm -hmm. a particular topic is very helpful for understanding that we need to recognize and, and, and understand these differing viewpoints. Absolutely. So just start with the BBC. Yeah. Sure. Start with BBC, start with Al Jazeera, start with- And then go to Al Jazeera and, and beyond. That's right. And, and, and again, uh, the, the important part is you don't have to, it doesn't mean you have to agree with the differing viewpoints. Just you just see have it. to understand that there is value when we yeah. understand what other people believe. Oh, there, there's uh, so much more. Um, our time is waning. I, let me remind listeners, uh, this is Working Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Richard Collada about his really important new book. It's called Digital for Good. And we're talking about the skills that we need to help ourselves learn and our kids learn uh, to be good digital citizens because we live in the digital world as well as in the other world, uh, the physical world, uh, more and more. And, and of course, uh, these ideas are going to evolve. And I, I, I uh, imagine that You'll be writing a different book five or seven years from now, Richard, as the, as the tools evolve and as our experience with them evolves. We've talked about being balanced uh, in terms of, you know, thinking about the value of the different kinds of tech use you have rather than just limiting in time. We talked about how important it is to be a, a discerning consumer of online information, how to try to see the world from other points of view, to be inclusive. What does it mean to be engaged and to stay alert? The fourth and fifth of the important buckets you have uh, curated in this uh, wonderful volume. So I love I love these two. So so uh, engaged. You know, we often think about how technology pulls us out of our surroundings, right? Out of our community, whether it's the neighborhood, whether it's our our state, whether it's our family. 
But actually, digital tools can be very powerful at doing the exact opposite, at actually helping kids be more connected with their communities and with their families. So a couple, couple quick examples. Uh, we, I'll start with, our, with family. Um, in our family, we create a device use agreement. It's just a, kind of like a contract. And it says, hey, if you're going to use a device in, on the network that I pay for, uh, there's some agreements that we're going to have with the roles and responsibilities. And one of those is that you help capture family moments. So use your device to capture pictures. Is that use in your here? Device. It is, is that absolutely in, your book? It's in the book. Yes. The DUA, I didn't see that. Okay. It is. I give, right. actually give an example. I give an example of my family's contract with one of my kids uh, in the yeah. book. And, and so one of the things that we say is your responsibility is to mm -hmm. capture family moments. And that could be by taking pictures. It could mm -hmm. also be, we have a little notepad on, on our, for our older kids on their devices. And when one of yeah. our kids says something funny or, you know, a, just a fun story happens, they just jot it down. So they help capture our family memories. The on history. Their so that's, that's just a great way that your kids can help be more connected to, to in, engaged in your family through their technology. And how does that expand beyond the family unit? Yeah, so, so you can also, as you can imagine, do similar things with the broader community. And, and one is using your, their voice, right? If there are issues that they care about, uh, they can use their voice on, on social media for older kids, et cetera, to share uh, what's important to them. But also it can be doing things to make our, our broader world better. Here's one simple example I give in the book. So the Smithsonian uh, has all kinds of, of materials, archives uh, that are in boxes and bins, right? Physical bins. If people want to go search for them, the only way to search for them is if those the records have been digitized, meaning somebody has gone through and typed in uh, what the, the name of the bone and what age it was from and whatever, so that it can come up in a search engine. Well, the Smithsonian has an app that kids or adults even can go in and they say, here's a picture of this, this tag that says what it is. Will you help us type it in so that it will come up in searches? And so a kid can take 10, 15 minutes while they're just bored waiting for something and actually help digitize the archives of the Smithsonian. Like what Get a fun out. activity. They're letting kids do that? Absolutely. That's a great and idea. Another uh, cool example, there's a tool called Just Serve. It's, a, it's an online site. And all it does is it says, tell us where you live. And it gives you a whole bunch of activities where you can give uh, uh, service, volunteer service to help organizations around your house. And so, again, just a fun way using technology to find ways to engage with your community. All right, let's repeat that and give the website again, because that is something I want to make sure everybody heard and can follow up on. Please, one more time. Absolutely. So the site is called JustServe, JustServe.org. Yep. And you can go in and you, it says, you know, where, where do you live and what, how, what mile radius do you want to search? And it will show whether it's a, a soup kitchen, whether it's a donation center, whether it's a school, it'll say here are opportunities to volunteer around your house. And so it's a great way to be engaged in the community. Justserve.org. Uh, reminding you, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. This is Stu Friedman, your host, and I'm speaking with Richard Collada about his book, Digital for Good. All right, Richard, what does it mean to stay alert? to be aware of your actions online and create safe spaces for others. What's yeah, the essence so, of that, that big idea, which is where you, you close? Yeah, so, so where I end is that being alert uh, means watching out for when there are uh, you know, risks in the virtual space as we started, right? There are dangers and we don't pretend that there aren't. But here's an interesting thing that we found. So uh, there have been studies that have shown that when kids witness uh, online bullying or, or, you know, other people being mean to each other, 90% of them report doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they're bad kids. It's not, but it's because a lot of our, uh, our, our rhetoric, right? Our discussion has been on how to avoid those situations, but not how to act when you are witnessing uh, an inappropriate action in a virtual yeah. space. Yeah. And what we find out is that for the, when action is taken, and this is the good news, right? When action is taken, when somebody steps up, even if they just say, hey, knock it off, that's my friend, or hey, we don't talk like that here, a very, very high percentage of the bullying stops. It just stops. Hmm. And so the, the essence of this idea, this chapter being alert is, is it's, it's not about selfishly just watching out for ourselves. It's about how we can help create safe, inclusive, welcoming spaces for others in the virtual world that we inhabit as well. That is such an important aspect of what it means to be an ally, to be a citizen, 
to be someone who helps to make the world more harmonious. And yet I'm sure much of the messaging is, oh, if somebody's doing something bad, make sure you stay away from that person and protect yourself. That's right. Right. That's so, right. And- so, so how do you deal with that concern that many parents would have? Like, oh no, don't engage, stay away. That bully's going to come after you and that's not good. So don't say anything. What, what do you say to that parent? You know, I think what's really helpful is to recognize that there, when, uh, when you are, you know, when somebody's being attacked in a virtual space, when there's something bad that's happening, there are things to do that work. And I think that's the problem. I think that's the fear that parents have is like, there's just nothing. Like if, if anything happens, if somebody starts being mean in a virtual space, we're helpless and, and, and we're not. And so what I try to lay out in the book is to say, if, you know, the first thing to do is if you witness anything that's inappropriate, just be an upstander, not a bystander, just like you would in the physical world. If you see somebody walking down the street who needs help, who's hurt, who fell down, we, we, we stop and we pick them up. We should do that in the virtual world as well. And then if in, 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 in any moment of that, we then started, you know, one of our kids starts being you know, picked on or, or uh, uh, you know, hurt in any way, there are steps that can be taken very quickly to uh, report. All the apps have uh, ways to report and flag inappropriate behavior, and it can very quickly be turned around when action is taken, where the when action is taken, is when no action is taken. Yeah. And that, you know, there's a whole stream of research that began uh, 50, 60 years ago now in social psychology called the bystander effect. Uh, and it was, um, I won't give the details of what, it, what generated it, but you know, the diffusion of responsibility was the, you know, the main initial idea as to why people didn't act because they thought somebody else would. That's so, right. Absolutely. Have fact, any specific that in the book. Advice? I'm sorry. Oh, I said, I actually referenced some studies that, that led to that research in the book about uh-huh. saying how there's, there's a whole concept of, you know, watching how, uh, you know, people could, could, could watch bad things happening and wouldn't act because they thought yes. other people would. And yes. that's, the, that's what we have to stop having happen in a virtual space. So how do you, what, what's the key to, to getting people to realize that they are responsible and that, uh, that they can act it's, as opposed to letting it go and assuming someone else will? It's being prepared for it in advance. And so it means having conversations that say, hey, let's practice. Let's say I'm online and, and I hear somebody say something mean. You know, what would be what would be something mean? And we could talk with our kids about what we figure we, we that we wouldn't tolerate hearing. And then saying, all right, now let's say that happens. Let's say somebody posts that. What would you do? And it's practicing in advance what the response is so that when it happens, there's no moment of paralysis. It's just like, oh, yeah, we talked about this. I know when somebody says something mean to my friend, I say, hey, that's my friend. Be nice. Right. It's that simple. And it can turn around a lot of the bullying that we see in virtual space. Well, it's like practicing those scales on the piano, isn't it, Richard? Like when you get your chance to solo, then you can move those fingers in a way that, you know, allows you to express yourself uh, musically and with soul. And it's really the same. It just requires some practice. So this is. This is no small endeavor for parents. Um, in the couple minutes we have left, Richard, what's what's the the overarching advice you have for parents who think, "Ugh, I just want to bury the smartphone in the backyard or throw it out my apartment window and not have to deal with any of this stuff?" Yeah, you're asking a lot of me. Um, how do you help parents? engage in the this aspect of their lives as parents when they've got so much else going on and, and to make it i don't know fun as well as productive and and to get over whatever resistance they might have yeah so look the the first thing that that i say and this is really important is you don't have to do all of this at once. We've just talked in the last little bit, we've talked about a whole bunch of different strategies and issues and problems and challenges, but you don't have to tackle it all at once. And so the first thing that I recommend is just take a minute to think about what your family's digital culture is. What do you like? What do you not like? What, what, what about your tech use in your family? And this is the important one. You have to do this too. What about your tech use in your family? Do you, do you think is good and healthy that you want to keep as well as the parts that are, uh, that you'd like to change? Just think about those. And then what I recommend is do two things. On, the, on an area of something that you're doing that you like, spend a minute double, doubling down on it, talking about how you can emphasize and, and recognize your kids, your family for using technology in a good way. And on the thing that is most annoying, right, the, the, the part of the technology culture that you most want to change, that's the one that you start to work on. And don't worry about the 10 other, 15 other things yet. 
just work on one piece. And when you start to feel like you're making some progress there, then go down the list. And, and, and it's like that old expression, you know, how do you eat the elephant? Like one bite at a time. We don't have to do this all at once, just iteratively over time. These are ongoing conversations. Yeah. And, and as you keep a focus on it, as you keep a focus on moving to the next thing and the next thing, over time, all of a sudden you'll find, wow, we're really, we're doing it. We're really doing the right things. And we have a culture in our family of technology use that we're proud of. You practice those scales, you're going to start making music. Exactly. And when you make music, it's actually very exciting because then you have more motivation and excitement to make more music and practice more scales. Because it feels good to make music. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, wow, there's uh, so much more I'd like to speak with you about. But fortunately, Richard, you have put your wisdom into this wonderful book, Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. Uh, Where can people find out more about this book and the great work that you're doing? Well, certainly, uh, if you want information about, you know, more behind the book and about the work that I've done, I have a website, which is innovativelearning.com. And so anybody can can go there. And the other thing, again, I would just say, grab a copy of the book. It's available on Amazon or any local bookstore that you uh, mm-hmm. uh, prefer uh, and, and just take a look at some of the ideas here. And I've laid out a whole bunch of questions. So at the end of each chapter, there are a series of questions that can help start conversations between mm-hmm. parents and children about these different topics. And so again, I hope it will feel like an easy, natural conversation to have, not something that is uh, you know, onerous or, or difficult to start. Yeah, um, I, I really appreciate the work that you've done here, Richard. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today and to share your wisdom and to have put it in, in such a form that really anyone can use. Uh, really appreciate your work and you're taking the time to chat about it. Thanks, Stu. It's been great to be here with you today. Well, all right. Uh, thank you for listening in to this conversation. Don't forget to tune in next week. 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, you can email me. I'm Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. I'd love to hear from you as I love to hear from listeners all the time. And I will read and respond to you. That's a promise. Our station is at business radio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow our show on Twitter at SXM business. I am on Twitter at Stu Friedman. And you can find edited versions of selected shows as free podcasts at totalleadership.org, where you can find all kinds of other free stuff, videos, book chapters, articles, and more information about how Total Leadership, our company, helps people create harmony and better performance in all parts of life. Thanks, Patty Hall, our producer, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.